Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined for a conversation on Edmund Burke on liberty, virtue, and commerce by Greg Collins, the author of a very interesting and exhaustive new book on Edmund Burke's political economy. Mr. Collins, thank you very much for joining me, first of all. Please introduce yourself for our audience, since it's your first time on the podcast, and tell us about your book. Well, thank you for the invitation to uh, appear on the podcast. My name is Greg Collins, and I am a postdoctoral associate and lecturer in the program on ethics, politics, and economics at Yale University. And I completed my PhD in politics, political theory focus uh, at the Catholic University of America. My book is titled Commerce and Manners on Edmund Burke's Political Economy. It explores how Burke, philosophically speaking, understood the relationship between ethics and economics, commerce and virtue. Now, under this rubric includes uh, discussion on his views on supply and demand laws, the grain trade in England at the time, how he understood the role of free trade in the broader conception of the British Empire, and it, of course, explores his reflections on the French Revolution. And in particular, it focuses on his understanding of the economic components and consequences of French Revolution and revolutionary activity in general. My general scholarly interests include the history of political thought, political philosophy, political economy as well. I published on Burke's views on commerce, uh, as well as his views on slavery, his and Adam Smith's views on Britain's East Indian Company, portions of which I incorporate into this book. And I included, uh, I wrote another article on Burke and Strauss, uh, Leo Strauss's critique of Burke and natural right and history. In addition, I have a side uh, project ongoing on the constitutional thought of slavery and abolition. I published on Frederick Douglass's constitutional thought as well. So that's a general background intellectual uh, interest of my career so far. This sounds fascinating, and it is also timely. We are recording between July 4, Independence Day, and July 14, Bastille Day, and we will be talking primarily about the American and French revolutions and Burke's thought on them. But Burke is so urgently our concern for deeper reasons than that. It is ultimately a matter of the relationship between commerce and virtue in our modern conception of liberty especially on the conservative side in American political debates, it is no longer taken for granted that we should be free traders. It is no longer taken for granted that we should be for globalization. And perhaps it's also obvious now that we are not quite sure what we mean by free trade and globalization. These are terms recently become dubious. All of a sudden you hear talks about a national industrial policy perhaps, and perhaps a new Cold War with China, and also some kind of economic nationalism. So the side that should be the Birkin side in America, the conservative side, the side that should be for the protection of property, commerce, and man reaching his dignity and freedom through work, productive work and trade, is convulsed by doubts. And it is suddenly the case that we need to redefine our terms, to investigate our origins, and to figure out what it is that we should be thinking about when we are thinking about liberty. And so your book is timely, and I hope it will have the success it deserves even beyond academic circles. It's a very academic book, and at the same time, it's a pleasure to read. I like the fact that you often set the stage. You have pleasant asides introducing Burke's remarks and appreciating his rhetorical flourishes and the effect he pursues in trying to show the true depths of his concerns that are not just commercial, but they defend human dignity as it was understood politically in England, as well as to some extent in America and in France. And at the same time, of course, you're very aware of how much Burke was a wonk, we would say today 
how important in his political rhetoric and parliamentary speeches of all places is his command of statistics and his interest in commerce this is not what we think of when we think of thundering rhetoric this reminded me of churchill whose books are also full of figures statistics and a command of the details not just the broad outlines of policy industry commerce and of course in his case also war this was a part of work that i was not at all aware of and the thing that struck me most reading your book as an innovation as a new important part of the portrait of the most wonderful orator of his age so i recommend the book to our audience and we will try to explain what it is that's so wonderful about burke's thought that is as potent now as it was hundreds of years ago let us start then with his concerns with commerce in the british empire and the case of the american colonies the relationship of commerce to liberty there and what wise policy might have required to forestall or at least alleviate the catastrophic separation between britain and america the key to understanding Burke's views on the economic uh, relationship between Britain and the colonies can really be traced back to the Navigation Acts. And these acts, they're mentioned here and there in the literature, but I th they tend to be underplayed in the historical literature and in America's understanding of that time period in the 1760s and 1770s. But at that time period, the Navigation Acts, they were the acts dating back to the mid-17th century that tended to confine the flow of trade within the British Empire. Commerce had to be on British ships, built by British crews, steered by British men. This was uh, intended to promote the commercial interest of the British Empire and to protect the security interests against commercial competitors, such as most notoriously the French. Burke is most famous for his thundering uh, oratorical attempts in the British Parliament in the 1770s and a couple of famous speeches to highlight the deep, not just economic, but cultural connections between the Americans and the British. His general view is that the British Empire, not just an American case, but regarding other colonial jurisdictions, the British Empire did have the imperial right to govern its American colonies. However, this is one of Burke's most famous views in his imperial political thought, with this imperial right comes imperial responsibility. Uh, the ruling power should govern with a light and selective and moderate touch, a humane touch, in order to allow the activities, including the commercial activities of British subjects, to flourish without being subject to arbitrary rulings and taxations and edicts from the imperial authority. In regard to America specifically, Burke thought the growth of the American colonies coincided with the growth of Britain proper. And the trading activity between the two allowed for collective flourishing and affluence uh, throughout the 18th century. Burke, in this context, is advocating precepts and themes that today we associate with arguments in favor of free trade. Free trade between two transacting parties in a voluntary and consensual manner produce affluence not just for themselves, but for the other. There is no zero-sum economic interactions going on. The rise in prosperity of one party does not lead the other to a reduction in prosperity. Burke applied these lessons to the American-British relationship. The rise in colonial affluence did not condemn the Brits to poverty or servitude, but there's a mutual collective reciprocity that emerged from the trading relationship. In his speeches on the American question, he thought the Navigation Acts, which were intended to confine the flow of trade within the British Empire amongst British subjects, they acquired a new face in the 1770s when instead of merely confining itself to this policy, they were attempting to tax the Americans for purposes of uh, revenue enhancement. This is most notorious in the Stamp Act. And at this time, the Brits were increasing their regulatory authority over the colonies. Burke thought this turn offended the original imperatives and purposes of the Navigation Acts, which again was merely to confine trade within the British Empire. 
he thought the return of the axe to this proper original purpose was the best course of policy at that time. Instead of completely eliminating the axe or instead of having the Brits continually uh, meddle and regulate the internal affairs of its colonial subjects. Now, this is a typically forceful but nuanced position. He did not think that the Brits should, ethically speaking and policy-wise, meddle into the internal affairs of the colonists. Burke is most famous for this insight. Their spirit of liberty, their love of English liberty, activated their instincts for industry, for diligence, for commercial activity. And he thought that this should be preserved. He did not think, however, that arbitrary meddling in their affairs would be able to promote not only their uh, instinct for liberty, but also promote the public interest of Britain itself, its commercial interests in particular. Therefore, he argued that the acts should be confined to its original purpose and they should not expand beyond that purpose in terms of arbitrary meddling in their affairs. That is the crux of Burke's economic understanding of the relationship between Britain and American colonies. Yeah, his policy prescription is, as you say, imperial government with a light touch. Britain should profit by American trade and profit by it primarily, allowing American trade elsewhere than Britain only to deal with leftovers. But at the same time, Britain should leave the American stacks themselves for the most part. Even if Britain has the right of empire, it would be prudent not to overplay its hand because of long, long traditions. For more than a century, Britain had neglected America And he is quite happy about that neglect. The accidental freedom of the English in America who become Americans strikes him as a great blessing for all parties involved. But it also comes with certain rules now since the Americans aren't just enterprising economically in every way, in farming and industry, in the fisheries across the world, but also because they are proud, because they have their own independence in their two ways, in the North and the South. And both would be incredibly angry and resistant to any notion of taxation. Admittedly, British America was very lightly taxed compared, say, to the British in England, but that made no difference in the given case. That's the prescription or the policy notion of Burke in the American case. It, of course, does not carry the day, but it is proved right by events far more than he could have hoped. But it relies on his description of the political situation in Britain and America. Talk to us about that. What is it in the law? What is it in the religion? What is it in the habits of the Americans that makes them so well suited for commerce and this light touch of the British Empire and at the same time terribly unsuited for any kind of servitude or any strict enforcement? So Burke is famous for carving out this distinction that raises an issue how the Americans understood the idea of liberty and rights. Burke is most famous for arguing that they were not uh, asserting the abstract natural right to revolt against a great imperial power, but they were merely trying to restore, reassert their English liberties that in their judgment were being encroached on by, we like to say King George, but really the British Parliament passing these laws. This love of liberty, Burke ascribes to the uniquely English cultural tradition of liberty, which was distinct from an abstract right of liberty that today, for Americans, we like to use that phrase. But for Burke, that was too historically anachronistic and failed to capture the unique qualities and characteristics of the Americans' love of liberty. Now, this love of liberty, of course, was not confined to commercial activities and manufacturing capabilities. They included the general spirit of fighting arbitrary force, fighting servitude, retaining constitutional heritage, common law, all these arguments that we're familiar with. 
Nevertheless, though, we should not discount that within this conception of liberty certainly included economic liberty. And this is where Burke provides some rhetorically uh, impressive imagery in his speech on American taxation and speech on consolidation with colonies about how the Americans, yes, they were diligent, they were courageous, intent on exploring new commercial routes, areas of navigation throughout the seas. In fact, he said that they overtook the Brits, and the Brits should be quite impressed by their uh, activities in this manner. And so this description really painted, one, a portrait of the Americans that sort of feeds the interpretation that Burke was sympathetic to the American cause. I wouldn't say he should go so far as to say that he robustly supported the Americans, but he was certainly sympathetic to their cause. And in this particular instance, he was sympathetic to their ingenuity uh, in terms of their economic activities, both in terms of their manufacturing capabilities internally and their commercial prowess on the seas. Yeah, you're right. Burke does not talk about the theory of natural rights that we read about in the Declaration. He doesn't say all men are created equal. He doesn't say that they are born with these rights that are inalienable. In fact, he seems to be far closer to Tocqueville. He points out how Americans became what they are. He explains that although the parliament isn't aware of this adequately, America is vastly wealthy and quite populated. It is already more than 2 million people, and their trade with Britain alone is quite close to what British trade had been at the beginning of that 18th century. I should also add, the idea of a love of liberty, Burke identifies with the Americans. He understood economic liberty, insofar as we can understand it as liberty, to be rooted in this non-economic spirit. This belief we can trace back to his early work, Council of the European Settlements in America, which he co-authored. And he makes the point that as long as a people's love of liberty is not extinguished, then their economic potential will not be doomed to failure, even if there are temporary depressions, war, instabilities. And this is a key point in Burke's economic thought, I came to realize that economic liberty was not simply the capacity to produce, consume, manufacture, trade. But it was a deeper sort of spiritual love of liberty, of activity, of enterprise, the spirit that can't be captured simply in economic terms. And he thought this was the motivating force for the activities of a people who engage in economic enterprise. Yeah, and that again is remarkably close to Tocqueville's later analysis of the American situation. Tocqueville, like Burke, says that Americans were first free and equality came actually much later. But liberty was there long before. Like Burke, Tocqueville also would later say that the Northern founding is a strange kind of Protestantism, as you explained so well in the book. Burke says these are the Protestants of the Protestants. These are the dissidents of dissidents. They're the strangest of that bunch. Indeed, they were outcasts out of Britain, not just the sons of England, as he also puts it. But it is that Protestantism that made them very, very vigilant so that they would never be oppressed in their views or in their minds. And this translated from religion to politics as well. And that suggests what the deep sources of the spirit of liberty, including commercial liberty, really is. And therefore, indeed, that the concerns of political economy are not merely narrowly figuring out the revenues a state needs to transact its business and perhaps to attain some security of the national finances. It also deals with the sources and with the purposes of political liberty and commercial liberty. At the foundation, there's something about this religious fundamentalism. It is fundamentalism in the sense that it asserts that the human being being created in God's image has something like a freedom of the mind 
although he is wary as always of abstract statements, Burke does not hesitate to point to the religion and to the extremely jealous regard that the American Protestantism of the northern colonies yeah. bestows on these Englishmen. They will not brook any sense that their own personal liberty in the most fundamental things is jeopardized, that they are in some sense servants in their minds or in their faith. And of course, like Tocqueville, he points out that as Puritan as the Northern founding was, so piratical was the Southern founding. In Virginia, these people are pirates, but like many pirates before, they have become aristocrats. It has made them incredibly haughty because they are masters of slaves. Yeah. And he says there's at least as much pride as virtue in this attitude. But nevertheless, from the British point of view, as you know, symmetrical from the American point of view, that means that they will not tolerate the intrusions, the infinite regulations and the continuous harassment of the British crown and parliament. For all these differences that we would associate with law and with religion and with habits of industry, with history and geography, America does stand united over against Britain. That's why Burke can point to this incredible rise in the 18th century of a new commercial standing across the Atlantic that Britain stands to benefit by tremendously as it has benefited but not if it chooses to introduce the military aspect of its empire into the concerns. Yeah, and, and I should mention that, the Protestantism, the incorporation of the religiously infused jealous regard of liberty, as you mentioned, fused with the embrace of the common law, the cultural similarities, really gave concrete substance to the idea of liberty and rights that, again, Burke thought that without this concrete substance was devoid of any meaning when we use these words. The two additional points in this matter. One, it raises the question, if Burke was promoting free trade between the Americans and the Brits, but he was doing this within the broader defense of the British Empire, was he advocating for free trade or was this a case of mercantilism? The second issue, in terms of the Navigation Acts, and this question, again, is underplayed when we discuss the American founding and war of independence. With the Navigation Acts themselves one of the principal causes of the colonial disturbances, or were the newer iteration of the Acts, which again increased the arbitrary meddling in the internal affairs of the colonists, were they the cause of colonial rebellion? Burke's view was that the earlier form of the Acts were not the cause of the disturbances. In fact, I think the first Continental Congress specifically said that we are content to be binded by the laws of trade under the Navigation Acts from the system thing from uh, the 17th century. What they were concerned with, however, was a new form of the Acts, which encouraged Britain to meddle into the internal affairs of the colonists. So Burke's point is that the Navigation Acts themselves, the regulations of the colonial trade were not the spark for the disturbances, but expanding cage of these restrictions and regulations was a main impetus. It's a nuanced argument, which also confirms Burke's belief that the utility of experience throughout time, such as the colonists' experiences under the Navigation Acts, if they tended to produce some utility for a people, which in Burke's case, he thought that they did, that it promoted the commercial activities of the colonists and that they were not causing any social disorder at that time. And so this is the other dimension of Burke's understanding of the Navigation Acts. Um, why eliminate the acts or why expand the acts when they tend to provide utility both to the Americans and the Brits for generations upon generations? Yeah, practice is beneficial. It's not just uh, reliable in the sense that we all know how we have been doing business. It's beneficial also in that we know what we are about. It's not really about the relations between political bodies or citizens. It's also about their relationship to their work, to the various crafts and trades and commerce that they are involved in. 
that is to say practice should carry a lot of weight it should tell people that even beyond their intentions they may have discovered some kind of success that they should be very careful about upending or transforming Burke seems to have thought primarily of empire as guaranteeing safety and regulating commerce in a fairly minimal state he doesn't say much about why shouldn't the british tax the americans having defended them against the french in the american version of the seven years war that would seem to be because britain does stand to benefit most from its empire but that requires a kind of self-restraint that is doubly unusual this is the flip side of the way burke treats america as america rose in the neglect of britain it's because the king and the parliament just didn't really think much about it of course partly because england had very serious concerns in the 17th and 18th centuries a civil war the glorious revolution then the wars of marlborough against louis XIV, the wars of the spanish succession and of course the seven years war there were very very serious concerns and some of them global so america simply slipped by this famous phrase, salutary neglect. <laughs> exactly. And it was indeed salutary. It turned yeah. to the good for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. But this also meant that Burke was actually looking in the 1770s as in the 1760s for a reform of how British authorities, the parliament primarily, even thought about the administration of empire. They had achieved great good things without thinking much about how it had been done and therefore without much respect the glowing portrait burke paints of america is in a way a rebuke of british ideas about imperial administration it required none of this meddling to achieve these incredible new riches and peacefully with the least imaginable quarrel between the mother country and the colonies imperial meddling would therefore be an extension of british politics but it would be the moment where salutary neglect turns into deleterious imposition but from the point of view of the British Parliament, it's the continuation of imperial policy as previously understood. Burke is trying to get the Parliament to change its views, to be more respectful of commerce. And as you point out in the book, this is not the usual portrait we have of Burke, who is supposed to be essentially a romantic reactionary who believes in the landed aristocracy. But there is this entire other side of him that makes perfect sense, that he is a respecter of innovation primarily through commerce because it expands something out of aristocracy, property. It will make men free, and in making them free, it will make them at once enterprising economically and moderate politically. Moderate politically because they stand a lot to lose but also enterprising economically because inasmuch as they own property they can see about their necessities and their opportunities without much meddling yeah. Yeah. and so the defense of the aristocracy and the clergy of france is actually not very far from his defense of the protestantism of the americans and on the other hand of their personal pride in their property and their endless busying about to acquire more if at all possible and of course, not necessarily legally. Smuggling and refusing to pay taxes was a very big deal. And again, Burke prefers to close his eyes to the illegality here. You know, it's wiser to just lower imposts, lower excises, taxes, whatever, and have more people pay for it. Everybody's more legal and, you know, the money comes up in the volume. In fact, I should add, in Burke's first session of Parliament, he was a principal architect of a piece of legislation called the Free Port Act of 1766. This act established six new trade ports in the British West Indies, which promoted the flow of trade between British planters in the West Indies and the Americans. 
And this was an instance in which they helped craft this bill that promoted free trade that also reserved privileges, prohibitions, and duties for the sugar interests in the British West Indies. This was one of his first major acts in which he had a heavy hand in crafting, in which he was consciously promoting and in contact with merchants, the commercial interest, and in trying to unclog the flow of trade. But again, it was also within the broader purview of the British Empire. And so again, we have this tension between whether we can characterize Burke as a free trade advocate or a defender of uh, mercantilist economic thought. But at the very least, this was an instance early on in his career in which he was consciously uh, promoting the commercial interest. And to your point, this area of his statesmanship does not get the attention that I try to tease out in the book. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that out because uh, reading through your book, when I got to this, I immediately thought of the child Alexander Hamilton, who was involved working in a trade house in the West yeah. Indies, in the commerce between New York or you know, America more broadly, actually, the West Indies and Britain. There you see the child of Burke's ideas of commerce and liberty. The concern of Burke was actually Britain. And his conception of British politics and the necessities of changing is far too wide for us to consider now. He was a reformer of the party system as much as a reformer of commercial policy. He was indeed very much involved, as you beautifully detail in the book, in establishing, encouraging, or even teaching Parliament to listen to merchants, but only in large numbers, never to a few friends or favorites who might profit by (laughs) monopolies or carve-outs, but instead to figure out what indeed are the big problems and the obvious solutions in trade both to make the political work easier and to get more buy-in from the stakeholders, as people would say today in governance uh, talk. And so that is the reformer side of Burke, and it shows his deep concern for Britain as a regime. His statesmanship is aiming at dealing with every part of empire and in figuring out where problems accrue in any specific part to figure out why this would be a problem at the center. The English regime has certain difficulties that have to be dealt with. Indeed, it is best to deal with them on a policy basis or on a part of empire basis. In your book, you go through America, the West Indies, you go through Ireland, you go through India. The various parts of the British Empire all get their dues. And it's because it is so much more prudent to show what the problems of a regime are when you can solve a specific problem. So that neither legitimacy is breached on the one hand, nor on the other hand are people very annoyed, since there is a solution on offer. And in as much as a local crisis brings the matter up, everything you sacrifice in terms of theoretical coherence, you gain by way of letting the urgency of the moment do the work of reason in the sense of necessity. On that that note, also, so many, many people have made the point of Burke as a reformer, not just in commercial matters, but other matters. But I try to bring this down in the book, and I think it should be emphasized. His reformist inclinations, I don't think we should reduce to piecemeal utilitarian experimentation based on the moment. In his reform efforts, there was a systematic vision of commercial policy, and this is extrapolated from this broader views of policy. Commercial policy should operate on a principal basis in order to establish a foundation for coherence for the future. That would ostensibly benefit the British Empire. And in fact, for the Freeport Act, he expressed frustration that he did not think the Freeport Act went far enough. Similar to the Irish trade bills went far enough in establishing this sort of systematic principled basis of reform going forward. Now, when I say systematic principled basis, that, of course, does not mean that he was embracing a proto-French revolutionary conception of natural rights. What it did mean is that he thought reform should be coherent, all tied together in a way that could establish this foundation for British commercial policy going forward. 
So in the case of Free Port Act, let's establish new trade ports. And this is also an instance of him trying to push back against the increasing mercantilization of the Navigation Acts, which even at this time in the 1760s, they were lurching forward towards expanding their medicine tendencies in the British West Indies. This was a case of the Free Port Act. Let's reestablish these principles of free trade within the British Empire. Going forward, this will help our interest in the British West Indies and it will also help the Americans and consistent with his belief in the mutual reciprocity of trade, this would help both parties. So this aspect of Burke, I think, should be emphasized as well. Because there is a tendency in scholarship to reduce his statesmanship to this utilitarian piecemeal sort of serpentine approach to affairs, which really dates back to mid to late 19th century interpretations of his thought as a pure utilitarian. But there was this element of systematic coherence to his reform efforts, illuminated in his commercial reform efforts. Yeah, one of the telling remarks about political psychology he makes that I was very pleasantly surprised to see treated in your book is that a man's love of liberty is actually perfectly compatible with facing a lot of misery and difficulty in establishing himself yeah. financially or in property. Yeah. It goes together with what you were saying before. The spirit of a liberty-loving nation will not be destroyed by a war, by a depression, by a famine, by a temporary misery, because people will not give up their hopes which ties them, of course, to their Christian faith. And on the other hand, times do change, circumstances do change, and people find a new opportunity. And again, the hand of necessity forcing them might reveal that they were doing things badly before, that they could do better with new opportunity. Yeah. That's an extreme version of the problems that he saw Britain going through, but it is for that reason more revealing. He had a view of the political psychology of the British subject, and he connected it to something that's not exactly regime theory, but it is the connection between virtue, the private concern, and liberty, which is also a public concern, yeah. since liberty is, first of all, the liberty of the nation, and only thereafter the liberty of the subjects or citizens in the British and American cases, respectively. And so these two extremes, the man and the grand design, have to be connected or else you cannot have any of the coherence that you mentioned. Yeah. But since he was concerned with both, that is very good evidence that he was a statesman, not reacting to circumstances merely. He was seeing in circumstances the details and the various parts of the great problem he saw that Britain would have to face. Yeah. This is perhaps harder to see because most of his attempts to reform parliament or the British Empire were failures. Yeah. But he also had significant successes and certainly at the time his reputation was astonishing. Everybody understood that his eloquence was in some relationship to practical wisdom. It's not fireworks, it's not playing with pretty speeches. It's his command of everything from the major parts of empire and the processes of parliament to, as you so well put it in your book, his command of the relevant data of the statistics that are supposed to show people what the reality is. You know, I, I think you're absolutely right. As I outline the book, Burke does have a well-earned reputation as a rhetorical genius. His flair of tying, his many allusions, biblical allusions, references to classical scholars, literary references, they decorate his commentary. That, that is certainly true. But, uh, as I discussed in the book, he also had an underappreciated respect for and fondness of empirical evidence. And I, I, I hesitate to include charts in this graph because I know political theorists and philosophers would give me a hard time about this. But, you know, I, I decided to go ahead and do it anyway because I thought it was faithful to the approach that Burke himself took discussing commerce. Uh, as you mentioned, as I discussed in the book, he referenced, he consulted, he included charts, graphs about export import data to strengthen his mode of reasoning about these particular policy reform efforts. I also sprinkled additional charts to paint the historical context. 
And also, I believe it reflected his theoretical understanding of the importance of empirical information in verifying claims about policy, about human affairs. But empirical evidence was one aspect of this historical evidence. So let's look at some historical evidence to see if trade has increased for the Brits and for the Americans throughout the 18th century. Let's see for enclosure bills, another policy issue he addressed. Have enclosure bills been rising or, or falling? And so he consulted this information both because, as you mentioned earlier, um, he did have this sort of wonkish attraction to statistical information. And also, theoretically speaking, it reflected his broader belief in the importance of historically verifiable information to strengthen and to supplement one's arguments. Yeah, we can broadly say that both his rhetoric and his thought give immense scope to the human power of calculation. Dealing with commerce is naturally connected with that, but even aside from property or money or trade, the graphs themselves and the calculations and involving in the crafting of policy the people who would know these things means that you have a connection to reality through this calculating power. This is part of Britain's transformation from an honor-based regime to a commerce-based regime. That's the you know, grand theme of the histories of Shakespeare. At the beginning of the histories, people kill each other over honor, but at the end of it, they stop doing that, and more and more calculation in its various guises emerges as the dominant form of politics. And indeed, that is part of the story of modernization. But Burke seems to have thought that this had not been adequately done in British politics. Yeah. And also, it's important to say, you know, calculation as a way to make a judgment, right, which ultimately cannot be reduced to simply pitting statistics against one another. For Burke, this is how he approached you know, the idea of statesmanship. You use this empirical evidence as a tool, an important tool, but not the only tool, in making a judgment about these complex matters that include concerns about commercial affairs, political, constitutional, national security affairs, religious affairs. And it sort of underscored how he valued this information about reform. Now, the lesson for today, of course, is that I think sometimes we are too fond of investing too much faith in mere statistical calculation uh, and empirical evidence and quantitative methodology when we have to make a judgment. I think Burke struck a nice, nice balance of incorporating this into his method of reasoning in order to inform his judgments on these matters. Yeah, that's right. At this point, we have gone yep. far too far in the direction of you know, inaugurating Wongs as high priests of the American <laughs> Republic. <laughs> the authorities over life and death and the course of policy and all that, and it's a little shy of insane. And that's another sense in which we do have to learn from Burke. As you say, calculation is a part of the prudence of the statesman, but it is not the decisive part. A mathematician is not for that reason either a good politician or a good merchant. Wongs or statisticians or the various people who study calculation these days are not for that reason very good businessmen, much less good politicians. They are useful, but they are not directing the effort. They are being directed instead. It is up to Burke to decide which are the relevant facts on which he should collect data, which are the relevant interests, and what is the balance between them before he can collect data and make persuasive arguments. That is indeed, to a very large extent, a lost art, unfortunately. And just like people could learn how to think and talk from Burke, they could also learn how to formulate policy, how to think about the parts of practical wisdom and where calculation stands among them, where also rhetoric and the other parts, of course, take their right place. And now that we have seen the capaciousness of his views of reform, we should say that calculation is so important because of the strange character of modern politics. 
Burke was very much aware, again, his portrait of America is most revealing on this side, something that seemed to be a mere desperate accident, a bunch of fanatics run over the ocean, turns into this astonishing commercial enterprise that only deep prejudice could keep people from noticing. But this is the story of modernity. There are more and more people. Commercial activity increases more and more. It is no longer possible to keep a hold of a country to govern it through a few very simple categories, as in the case of the French situation, which will soon turn, would be the three estates. Because of the complexity of the motions of people and the new opportunities that are open to them, it is simply required that you turn to the new dominating activity of private life, which is commerce, and you cannot do that without learning how to count and do statistics. This is required for people to realize not what will happen, but what has happened. The power of calculation has to do with, well, we passed that law 10 years ago, what happened since? Or these changes have occurred that everybody knows about, how bad or how good are they? It is the understanding of the immediate past that is the proximate context of policy and of political crisis that is aided by calculation. Understanding the deeper questions about how to deal with the future, the prediction that is required for policy formation, is actually a very different part. And it cannot be tied up with calculation because calculation is by definition of specifics, whereas political judgment is at least the whole of the regime and its temporal context over a long period. You cannot run a country with a narrow mind, and it doesn't matter how sharp it is at its narrow point. Park is very much aware of that, and I especially appreciated this part of your treatment of him. His concern with what is the whole which we are considering? How do we understand what is happening, and what is the context of the actions? That is the way in which politics can broaden the mind. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, of course, of great importance. Now, that said, we should turn to the other great revolution Burke saw, about which he had entirely opposite opinions, the French Revolution. Yes, it's the French Revolution. Burke is most famous for his uh, attack on the French Revolution in his most famous writing, uh, Reflections on the Revolution of France. He is most famous for that attack for criticizing the French Revolution's elevation of abstract reason over the importance of historical experience and custom his lamenting of the loss of chivalry of Europe's medieval past, and his defense of prejudice and the collective wisdom that is built up throughout generations that the current generation should not overthrow, which he thought the uh, French revolutionaries were doing when the Estates General turned into the National Assembly, and then the Reign of Terror uh, later on, and other events that we're familiar with of the French Revolution. His economic critique of the revolution, however, is not as well known nor appreciated. J.G. Pocock, a fantastic intellectual historian of the Cambridge School of Historiography, um, he probably has provided the most probing analysis of this issue. And so I pay homage to him for leading the path on the subject. In terms of the French Revolution, Burke thought the most violent offense to his cherished beliefs about political economy, broadly understood to include commercial activity, which we haven't discussed so far. But this is what Francis Canavan discussed as well in his book, Burke's defense of landed property, which I think it's safe to say was even more integral to his conception of political economy than the protection of commercial property. Burke's defense of landed property rested on the premise that landed proprietors, the hereditary aristocracy, represented moderation. They held a concrete stake in the community. And this is reflective of, dating back to classical notions of landed property, they held a concrete stake in the community of landed property, and so they would not support measures that would threaten to overturn social order. And uh, landed aristocrats, they were patrons of high culture, they were benevolent, they're humane, the idea of noblesse oblige, the whole idea of a, the landed gentleman as providing sort of the moral compass of society. We can all associate with Burke's defense of landed property. 
the French Revolution, they seized the property of the Gallican, the Catholic Church in France. And this was a brazen, brazen attack on Berg's treasure beliefs about land and property. The church represented the idea of prescription, the idea of time-tested utility over time, all particular possessions that granted a title to property for a particular party. And the French revolutionaries, the constituent assembly, they expropriated the church lands in order to pay down Dantian regime's debt, which was one of the causes leading up to the French Revolution. And they intended to sell them off through sort of a type of bond that became legalized, paper money called assignat, part of my French for those who know French. This violated Burke's cherished beliefs about political economy in a number of instances. One, it violated the idea of prescriptive private property rights. Two, the Gallican Church itself was a religious institution that was an integral, integral part of French culture dating back centuries. Three, the Assignats, there was a profusion um, of paper money that the French Revolutionary Assembly encouraged throughout France. This led to eventually hyperinflation after Burke published the reflections on the revolution in France. Vast instabilities in prices in the agricultural economy at that time and represented a sort of philosophical abstraction using paper money to attempt to solve and mitigate the financial difficulties of France. When for Burke, it simply exacerbated the economic situation of France at that time. These two events underscored Burke's belief that if you attack the landed property of a political community, that would provoke vast social disorder. One reason why he was so intent on protecting the land and property rights of the British aristocracy and why he defended primogeniture and entail, which were the rights of inheritance that reserved the right of the firstborn son to inherit the property and entail prevented the alienation of property. And so this was an instance in which Burke believed that some aspects of civil society understood capaciously, not simply to mean intermediary institutions, but civil society as the interactions of man in a civilized state. He thought that landed property should not all be up for the market. And this points to Burke's nuanced understanding of political economy that can, I think, offer some insights in today's discussions about economics. Some landed property should not be up for pure commodification, pure utilitarian considerations. Because land and property itself had sort of an inherent value in promoting social stability in a political community, not only in Britain, but in France and, and elsewhere. And he also applies his insight to the case of British India. And so in, in the instance of the French Revolution, land and property rights were attacked by the church and ecclesiastical and secular authorities. And also the landed interest in the national legislature when the National Assembly conflated all three estates. He thought that it was vastly underrepresented, and therefore the National Assembly did not have that temperament of moderation and a concrete stake in the community to preserve social order if reforms were going to take place. Yeah, that's right. So far we had talked about commerce, which is the engine of change or modernization, the way populations increase, and increased populations can acquire property and can get value out of that property through crafts, through trades. The artificial society is simply much richer than the natural society. But this is not the only part of politics, because as change is necessary, so also the rest is even more necessary, or else no society even knows what it is, or even is anything. You cannot leave it to chaos. And so you need an element of stability, and that will be provided by landed aristocracy. These are men who hold themselves proud and who at the same time have noblesse oblige. Since they are born into their privileges and powers, they cannot say, as our elites do today, with whatever claim to justice, that they earned it. They have it bestowed on them and they have to hold it. Tocqueville has this astonishing statement about how different democracy and aristocracy are with regard to land. It says that the aristocrat is born of his land, indeed it gives him his name, 
and therefore in himself he remembers centuries of his ancestors and at the same time he loves his offspring who will inherit self-love is actually tied up with a historical perspective and the continuity of a way of life and so landed aristocracy is supposed to establish a stability in politics that would not be possible in a purely commercial society where it is simply risky that certain changes will collapse the whole you could say that in the british case the house of lords is the landed aristocracy but there is a lot more of the influence of commerce and change and ambition in the house of commons and they have to balance each other out to a significant extent and even in that regard, Burke did not separate these two activities. Landed property was essential to preserving social stability. Commercial activity was essential to producing wealth. But, you know, especially in England, the liberalizing tendencies of the Glorious Revolution, late 17th century through the 18th century, this insight itself was not a wholly unique insight from Burke. Historians will be the first to say this. England itself was, you know, as has been said many times before, a nation of shopkeepers, more sympathetic to commercial activity. And also, there was a closer alliance interaction between the landed and commercial interests. And in fact, I mean, they blended. Burke himself, I discussed in the book, he was a farmer, and he traded in the local marketplace. And in fact, in his primary economic tract, Fault in Details on Scarcity, he briefly talks about his own experiences trading goods in the marketplace. But he was also a landed proprietor. He had an estate. Now, he was not from distinguished pedigree of you know, the Pitts and his other great families in English politics. And so he was on the lower end of the landed gentry. And he did not separate these two entities. And to your comments about stability and change, this was one reason Burke thought England struck a nice balance between promoting public riches and commercial prosperity, while also maintaining that element of social stability that protected commercial prosperity and financial activities from devolving into social disorder. And this was precisely Burke's point about the French Revolution. The financial and commercial interests and the Lenin interests uh, became separated throughout the 18th century. And this was one reason why what he called the moneyed interests, so the creditors of the French state that basically were bankers of the French government, they became segregated and led to social animosity between the social classes. This was Burke's sociological point that distinguished the English and French experiences in the 18th century. Yeah, I largely agree. I take exception with one thing. The two Pitt prime ministers are not, in fact, nobility. William Pitt, the elder, was after his career created the Chatham. His career was made possible by Marlborough's widow, yeah. who gave him a vast sum of money to start him off as a politician. Oh, yeah, I should say Burke did not derive from a great political pedigree. Exactly. Right? He came from what they would consider to be modest circumstances, which at that time was not unheard of, but it was still somewhat unusual for someone from modest circumstances to achieve the renown that he did. That's right. In the late 18th century. But um, no, no, well taken point, well taken point. In that way, he is like Cicero, who also did not come from high birth yeah. and was also a great orator, of course. But indeed, even this fact that men like uh, William Pitt and Edmund Burke could rise by patronage into astonishing political careers points to the fact that the British aristocracy as a ruling class was interested in recruiting new talent outside of its elements of stability. Yeah. It is not merely scions who end up being important. That, of course, is also connected with what you point out in your book, that Edmund Burke's argument for aristocratic tenure of property is tied up with the improvement of the property. Yeah. Now, yeah. if you visit an estate today, you might see a manor house or a castle or something, but what Burke would point out is that it took generations to build each part of it, and it was only the safety of tenure that made in each new generation people say, well, we could actually attempt some innovation. We could transform how we do this thing. We could add to that thing. That perspective, he says, is required if people are going to have the kinds of improvements necessary. And so aristocracy and its landed interests are indeed tied up both with commerce and with technical innovation, yeah. which is, again, a part of Burke's modernity. 
His views remind me above all of those stated by Xenophon Socrates, both in the Memorabilia and in the Economicus. You see the shocking views of how you could modernize aristocracy, agriculture, trade, family life, get the women to work, start treating them more like equals. It's quite shocking, yeah. but he seems to be thinking exactly in the way Burke is thinking, since Xenophon of all the ancients was the most moderate, the most elegant, and the most pious. And this is also how Burke conducted himself throughout his life and in his activities. If you'd be the first to say that some land proprietors, yeah, they simply did not have the agricultural ingenuity or commercial experiences as the trader. In his tracts on the popery laws in Ireland, he specifically said this. And so he certainly understood the strengths and weaknesses of both interests. And he thought there was this delicate harmony that could be produced between the two that could promote stability and prosperity. Yeah, that's exactly right. The traders will be much more attentive to opportunity and much more aware of novelties. And this might be what's required in all sorts of cases. And so, as we said in the American case, in fact, Burke was for innovation and for reform, but he was very, very serious about the fact that it had to be built on the foundations of liberty already established and not to shake them instead. The American situation was a modernization, a bit too abrupt because of a political conflict that from Burke's point of view could have been avoided. Britain as an empire, America as a part of it could have gone on together without the catastrophe of the war. But the French Revolution is a different sort of situation because you have all these sorts of medieval institutions coming under attack that, of course, just didn't exist in America anyway. There was no king. There was no first estate of the aristocracy of the church. Indeed, as you point out, he insists that, strange as it would seem to modern years to hear that the Catholic Church owned 10% of the land in France, he was for them keeping it because the church was the instrument of prescription in France. The church made everything legitimate, even beyond the law. Put it this way, the difference between the monarchy and the French Revolution was who owns the dead. <laughs> in the modern situation, in the Republican situation, it's a matter of public health and, you know, some inspectors will deal with whatever. But before that, everybody's dead were buried by the church. The church owned your dead. And the church took account, therefore, of past and, of course, also of future. Baptisms and confirmations and wedding ceremonies. Everything was confirmed in its changes as well, in its staying the same by the church. And a tenth of the land in the country seemed to burn a small price to pay for that kind of stability. And an attack on it, on the other hand, seems unforgivable precisely because this is not something you can repeat. You cannot reconfirm the church in its holy inviolability. And therefore, it cannot perform anymore the offices of sanctifying life and telling people that is to say that being a human being is unique because of God's beneficence. And without that, the spirit of liberty seems to be much, much harder to establish. And so the thing that might seem harmless in the modern view, the attack on the church, is for Burke the sure sign that vast catastrophe in every aspect of life is about to come. Because the roots of belief and habit have been shredded, as you memorably say in one passage. Yes, right, yeah, yeah. This is why I also defend the Church of England, right, against increasing attacks on disestablishing that church as well. This also goes to the point of, similar to how we did not isolate the land and commercial interests, Burke did not, broadly, broadly speaking, and this is essential how to understand Burke's thinking, he did not isolate anything into a self-segregated sphere. The economic related to the political, related to the cultural, related to the religious, related to the social. The church was not simply a religious institution. Similar to your comments, not only did it imbue the state with a sacred quality, it held social and economic functions as well. He discussed the monastic contributions to French society and the reflections on the revolution in France. They provided not simply spiritual refuge, but also material benefit to the people. 
And so this was part of France's not just religious order, but also economic order. And to attack the monasteries as well was an attack on the foundations of French society and its economic structures. And so the religious blended with the economic and blended with the political. And when you attack one of these foundations, the strongest foundation for Burke, the religious, that undermined not simply the religious foundation, but also sent shocks to the social and economic spheres. I should also add, in terms of his main economic tract, which I mentioned earlier, Faulty Details on Scarcity, this actually relates to the French Revolution. He wrote this in 1795 in light of the French Jacobin policies in 1793-94 in terms of their policies of enacting price controls and dictating the flow of resources in France. Reports of these regulations appeared in British newspapers around this time. And Britain itself was confronting a grain crisis in the mid-1790s due to a poor harvest, the French Revolutionary Wars. So there's a confluence of events in Britain itself that led to uh, instabilities. So Burke wrote this tract, intended for government ministers, eventually published as a public letter, arguing that the grain economy, he was talking about primarily the agricultural economy, the corn trade, the grain trade, should be left, generally speaking, to the self-regulating market order of exchange, protect the basis of voluntary contracts between farmers and laborers on the farmland. Burke thought that this was a far more effectual way to distribute provisions in a vigorous and efficient manner than meddling by the state to regulate employment contracts, establishing minimum wage laws, build more public granaries. And so in terms of the elemental principles of his economic thought, in this tract, he defended supply and demand laws, defended the importance of free labor contracts. Today, what we consider this to be market liberty. I don't want to use the word capitalism because that term, of course, wasn't around then, but so proto-agricultural capitalist activities uh, amongst market participants. And Burke thought that state meddling from the British state would undermine the supply and demand laws and therefore promote the inefficient distribution of resources. And also in relation to the French Revolution, he detected that this was further exacerbating the economic problems of France at that time, which for him, again, would lead to the inefficient distribution of resources. Yeah, the new science of economics, the very emergence of the term political economy, which is a creation, I think, of the 18th century, I'm not sure it was around in the 17th, suggests the importance of commerce and change in the new political situation. And Burke is, in that sense, unique. You have a very good discussion of this in your introduction, in his balancing political and economic concerns. Political economy is not yet a replacement for politics. He is the contemporary of the renowned Adam Smith, and Adam Smith is many things, but not savvy about politics. Yeah. You're going to upset Adam Smith listeners to this podcast. I don't want to, I don't want to ding them. <laughs> uh, indeed, no. It's just that yeah. he specialized in the wealth of nations rather sure, yeah. than in yeah. the sources of politics and its structures. Another great liberal, a philosopher of higher rank even than Burke, I would say, is Montesquieu, who was very interested in liberal politics and the importance of liberty to modern politics, up to the point that he preferred modern England to ancient Rome. But he didn't write about economics in the way Adam Smith did. He focused on the political. And Burke is not just a politician, but is a political thinker as well. And he is strangely well balanced in between the two extremes of the concern, as Smith would put it, for the system of natural liberty, which is both interesting and a contradiction in terms. And on the other hand, the concerns of Montesquieu for the spirit of the laws. Yeah. The Burke-Smith relationship, briefly, is very interesting. 
There's been a number of articles written on that. I try to build off those articles. To your point, Smith, he was a collector of customs, but he never was a legislator, you know. And so the wealth of nations, it goes without saying, is the grandest blueprints of points of economic liberty through to this day. There's interesting areas in the wealth of nations, and this would particularly interest those interested in Smith. So an implicit, I dare say, Straussian esoteric exchange of ideas between them on particular policies, the corn laws, and a couple other instances when Bergen Smith, whether consciously or not, are sort of going back and forth about the merits of particular policies and the pace at which reform should take place. And generally speaking, so the whole idea of empire. Burke was more of a defender of Red Smith one at the end of Wealth Nations, as we know, wants to sort of argue that this is not really worth our time. Let's get rid of it. The appendages of the colonies. But generally speaking, both were proponents of economic liberty. Burke was more religious. He stressed the importance of the religious foundations of commercial activity and civil society. In terms of rationalism, I was thinking about this, sort of create a rationalism spectrum in the 18th century. On the most rationalist end, let's say on the left, uh, you would have the French physiocrats, the advocates of free grain trade in France in the 18th century. I actually start out the book by saying if these French physiocrats were advocating a free grain trade based on the natural laws of commerce, and Burke was doing that as well, he used that phrase, natural laws of commerce, in Thoughts and Details on Scarcity, then how come Burke isn't placed in this rationalist camp as a French physiocrat? And I argue that he started with that rationalist approach, invoking the natural laws of commerce. But to my point earlier, he incorporated this in a wider religious, social and cultural dimensions of a political community. So in terms of rationalist spectrum, I would put the physiocrats on one end, Burke on the other end, and then Smith between those two in, in some way. Smith, I would say, was more rationalistic than Burke. But Smith was certainly aware of the limits of the dangers of the hardened uh, rationalistic tendencies of the physiocrats at the time. And so that's how I would frame that issue. But I'm certainly open to debate with scholars on Burke, Smith, and the physiocrats on that matter. And so if Burke did invoke the natural laws of commerce, and this is sort of an internecine debate within the Burke scholarship, whether he was really blindly advocating for rationalist economic policies in the 1790s. And I think it would be difficult to maintain that position in light of his concomitant critique of the French Revolution for pushing rationalism at that same time period. And so I try to iron out this seeming inconsistency by saying that Berg was quite aware of the natural laws of commerce, but he was also quite aware that society could not be pushed into these natural laws of conformity when all these other complex dimensions should be taken into account. And therefore, economic activity should be integrated into a wider cultural, political, religious landscape. That should temper its commercial and financial activities, self-destructive tendencies. Yeah, and this is a really funny thing that somebody like Tocqueville would point out that the Englishman Burke is very interested in the institutions of France before he says anything about the French economy or yeah. commercial politics. Yeah. Whereas the French physiocrats are often way too interested in England and not at all in their own uh, situation. And then perhaps that then is the difference. And I think this is a good way to conclude our conversation where Burke stands in the modernization of commerce, of politics, of liberty. It's, of course, a very important problem now. You know, are we more for Burke? Are we more for Smith? This is not merely of interest to scholars. It's actually of great importance for policy in America and therefore the rest of the world. All of these things will be debated in our lifetimes and hopefully they will be decided wisely. But I, for one, would be much more assured if people really did take Burke seriously as a founder of conservative thought, as a great proponent of liberty and therefore a liberal but a liberal, as you say, with an incredibly complex vision of the various domains of life, as interested in religion and the law, as in commerce and politics and everything else that makes the life of a nation what it actually is. 
now to our audience, I have to say we have only talked about uh, really a bit of the beginning of the book, the center of the book, and the end of the book. This is a complex treatment that goes beyond uh, Burke's own life, uh, America and France. These are, of course, high points, but they should be understood in the coherent and incredibly interesting story of his political activities. You know, it's something of a personal drama. It's not a biography that you are writing, but it does involve the political biography and intellectual biography of Edmund Burke, how he reacted to events, how he developed his mature vision. And it turns out, like in the movies, that at the end he has to face this great, great conflict, the French Revolution. It's quite astonishing and indeed better reading than most scholarly books. So please, people, just hop on Amazon and go buy Gregory Collins' Commerce and Manners in Edmund Burke's Political Economy. Mr. Collins, thank you very much for joining me. This has been a wonderful conversation. This book has given me very much to think about, and especially as colonial America has recently been on my mind and on the podcast here. Thank you very much. All the best.